Welcome to the Institute Podcast, Health Equity from the Front Lines. I'm Dr. Efrain Talamantes, and I'm joined by Dr. Marco Angulo and Dr. Roger Liu. Welcome to another edition of Health Equity from the Front Lines. Today is my turn to sit in the hosting hot seat. My name is Dr. Roger Liu, and I'm the Director of Medical Education in the Ultimate Institute for Health Equity. And as always, I am joined by my two co-hosts, fellow colleagues and good friends, starting with fellow Institute partner in goodness and new Medical Director of Medical Education, Dr. Marco Angulo. My name is Marco Angulo. I'm the new Medical Director for Medical Education at the Altamed Institute for Health Equity. We're coming to you live from the third floor at Altamed University. And last but definitely not least, our newly appointed Altamed Chief Operating Officer, Dr. Efrain Talamantes. We have a very special guest for our podcast today, University of California, Berkeley, Professor of Integrative Biology, Dr. Tyrone B. Hayes. Dr. Hayes is one of the world's leading experts in the field of comparative endocrinology and environmental chemical contamination. He has published and presented hundreds of papers, talks, and seminars on these endocrine disruptors, including their role in the global amphibian decline and the impact on humans with emphasis on the health disparities that occur in minority and low-income populations. Specifically, his work on the herbicide atrazine and its impact in demasculinizing and feminizing male frogs gained worldwide news as well as significant controversy from Big Pharma, including Syngenta and Novartis. For many years, Professor Hayes battled these companies as they tried to both discredit his work and his name. The story was first published in 2014 for The New Yorker magazine. Through these experiences, Professor Hayes has become an advocate and leading voice for the environment. Dr. Hayes' work has been featured in the 2008 documentary film, Flow, For Love of Water. He appeared in the 2012 documentary, Last Call at the Oasis. He has appeared on numerous shows from Bill Nye the Science Guy to National Geographic's Strange Days on Planet Earth, hosted by Ed Norton. And in 2015, he starred in What's Motivating Hayes, directed by Jonathan Demme, award-winning director of Silence of the Lambs. On top of that, he is a leading activist and advocate for diversity and equity in academia. Dr. Hayes is the only black tenured biology professor at UC Berkeley and one of the few in the entire country. He has served on numerous national panels and task forces to increase the number of minority and disadvantaged students in higher education, especially in the STEM fields. Professor Hayes has challenged the traditional ivory tower and status quo and has been open in how the color of his skin has affected his work, his ability to conduct research, fundraise, teach, and be viewed by colleagues and university leadership. On a personal note, I have known Professor Tyrone Hayes for over 30 years. I work with Dr. Hayes as an undergraduate and received my PhD as one of his very first students. It is not an understatement to say that if it were not for Professor Tyrone Hayes, I would not be where I am today. He has been my greatest mentor and outside of my father has been the role model I aspired most to be. He taught me how to be a scientist and a teacher and above all, to understand the importance of diversity and equity. I can go on and on, but I want to pass this over to my co-host, Dr. Marco Angelo. Marco? Oh, it's just an honor for us to have this space I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, I've always been in awe of you, not only the way you carry yourself, your, your passion, your purpose in life, but uh, I actually had the, the gift of taking your endocrinology course my uh, senior year at Cal. And let me tell you, it was, and I'm not just saying this because you're here, 
it was the greatest course I ever took at Cal. Not only that, I never went to an endocrinology class in medical school because, and I aced the finals each time I took it in medical school. That's how prepared I felt I was. Not only that, my career as a family medicine doctor deals with endocrinology all the time. So you're always in my thoughts every single time. So I just wanted to say thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you stand for. We've been looking forward for this for a long time, but uh, welcome. Welcome to our, to our podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. You're all very generous. <laughs> now, Fran, you want to say a few words before we start this off? Yes, most definitely. Welcome, Professor Hayes, to our podcast. We're really excited to have you with us today. I know I haven't had the pleasure to meet you in person, but do look forward to it one day. Uh, I know our audience is in for a very special treat. Uh, many of them have had to overcome a significant amount of adversity, including institutional discrimination and or racism in the sciences. So for them to hear from a prominent professor in the sciences at the University of California, Berkeley is really a testament to how important it is for us to persist in the sciences and, and, and medicine. And more importantly, that you continue to inspire countless generations of scholars to advance equity. And so now that I hear from uh, Dr. Lu and Dr. Angulo, uh, I'm starting to feel a little bit left out and maybe I need to return back to undergrad and uh, take some courses, some of your endocrinology courses at Berkeley. Uh, but really excited to have you and uh, hear from you today. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Marco always tells everybody you can go into Siri and say Tyrone Hayes, and it'll actually give you an answer. I don't know if you knew that. He has, he has his own <laughs> Wikipedia page. Awesome. <laughs> so even though I'm sure many people know you, if you can, you're a self-described boy who likes frogs. How'd you first get introduced and inspired to study science? I, you know, I'm... I'm one of those people who I've always been interested in the same thing. I've been interested in frogs or just in, in wildlife and biology and environmental science and the interaction between the physical environment and animals and plants for as long as I can remember. Um, from as simple things as wondering why or how birds know when to fly south and when to come back, or in my case, I've been studying all my life, how frogs know when to metamorphose. And a real interest in the internal physiology. So how do the parts know what the other parts are doing? For example, when you metamorphose, how does the tail know what the legs are doing? When a tadpole metamorphoses or turns into a frog, the tail goes away and it grows legs. Well, what if the tail went away before the legs were there? You know, then you have a problem. Or what if the gills went away before the lungs were developed? So how do those, how are those parts coordinated? And also how do they coordinate with the environment? If you metamorphose too early, then you're not big enough to get food. If you metamorphose too late, the pond might dry up and you might die before you metamorphose. And it turns out that hormones, I learned later in life, not as a little kid, hormones control the genes that control all of those processes and changes in the environment affect those hormones, which then coordinate those parts. And on a much less sophisticated level, these are questions that, you know, when I was a little kid, it was magic. And, and so what it's been like for me is to, to grow up and actually learn about molecular mechanisms and steroid metabolism and how steroid hormones regulate genes. At the same time, I watched the frog happen, knowing that all of these things happen. It's still magic to me. Even though we can break it apart and understand all the little parts, I still watch it with the same amazement that I did as a little kid. Thank you, Professor Hayes. Man, you make me you make me want to go back into your lab. <laughs> <laughs> we could use we could use it right now. No, but we, we need it, we need him over here. We need him over here. So, no. <laughs> uh, Professor Hayes, I, I think if you can bring the wildlife to us, uh, that's really what we're we're asking here. Re-inspire us, right, with wildlife. 
So your research focuses on the effects of the weed killer atrazine in amphibians, specifically frogs. And you've been told by colleagues, I'm sure, time and time again, don't be an activist. Let the science speak for itself. Mm-hmm. Well, what is the science saying? And, and furthermore, if atrazine is feminizing frogs, what is it doing to our communities? So I first got involved with the atrazine work about 20 years ago. And at, at the time, I had a new graduate student who was working on so-called endocrine disruptors. He had come from a lab that was studying alligators and endocrine disruptors, a graduate student named Nigel Noriega. And um, also, I was at Berkeley with um, somebody who had worked on DES, a recognized endocrine disruptor. And I, I was introduced to this idea that there are chemicals in the environment that interfere with hormones. And so having recognized now that hormones coordinate all these parts within the frog as it's developing, and that the environment regulates the hormones that regulate the parts. Now, what I started to realize is that some of the most important factors in the environment that might affect development and growth and physiology were synthetic compounds that we had created, that we humans had created and put into the environment. So with that recognition, I had started to work on assays or tests to actually determine if novel compounds were potential endocrine disruptors. I literally patented a little frog that changes color in response to estrogen. So almost like a litmus test, we could dip the frog in solutions or in, in different chemicals. And if they change color, then we could identify estrogen mimics. And then I was approached by Novartis, at the time the largest chemical company in the world, and they asked me, can you tell us if atrazine does anything? I'd never heard of atrazine. And so we set about conducting studies where we exposed with atrazine and then we measured outcomes that would be indicative of hormone disruption. So we measured the larynx or the voice box because that's androgen or testosterone dependent. We examined the gonads and sex ratio because estrogen affects the sex ratio in frogs. We measured growth and time to metamorphosis because that's regulated by thyroid hormone. And we discovered that atrazine uh, had both demasculinizing properties. It stopped the larynx from growing, indicating that it somehow interfered with androgen production or action. And it resulted in a number of animals that weren't completely feminized, but they had both testes and ovaries. So they were true hermaphrodites, which is not typical of of amphibians. There are fish that are naturally hermaphroditic, but not, not amphibians. And that was, you know, that work was all bought and paid for by the company. And and I was very naive at the time. I thought, oh, they're going to be excited that that now I figured this out and and you know now they can stop production or alter the formula or or whatever. And and their response was not what I predicted. They basically wanted me to hide the data or manipulate the data or or just take their money and work on something else, but just certainly not to re- report the data. And as I say, the rest is history. Of course, I not only published the data, but then that led to about a 20-year battle between me and the chemical company and some, I think, largely affected my relationship with the university. I think some of my less than positive interactions with the university were because of my negative interactions with a company that at the time was providing a lot of resources, not to, not to my lab, but a lot of resources to the university. I think a fifth of the biological sciences at Berkeley were funded by the same company at that time. And I was seen as somebody that was not favorable to bringing in that money, which which was important to the university, that, that type of financial support. Thank you, Dr. Hayes. There are times in our careers where we're asked to compromise our values for the sake of the status quo. Tell us a little bit about how were you able to stand up to these giants, including those in the university, and not compromise your values? 
You know, that's 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 a really hard thing to describe in, in retrospect. And I've been given credit a lot for, you know, standing up for what's right and standing up for human health. And the reality is, I'll be honest, and I'm always honest about this, my initial response was a very personal response. My initial response was, you know, my father used to say the difference between employer and employee is a piece of paper on the wall. My father not, never got the chance to graduate high school, but he taught that once you have the paper on the wall, you're as good as the white man. You're as good as the boss. And my father used to say, never find yourself in a position where you let another man tell you when to get up in the morning, when to eat your lunch, and when to go home to your family. And when when the Vardis told me that I couldn't give talks or I couldn't publish the work that I was doing, I was like, wait, my dad said, you know, and that was really my first, you know, it was a very personal thing that, that you don't own me or my ideas or my, you know, even this idea of the patent that I filed was the university's intellectual property and they could tell me what to do with my ideas and they could sell my ideas. And, and that whole thing just didn't set right for me as somebody who, you know, really just, you know, my grandmother her mother, my grandmother's grandmother was born a slave. And so for people to talk about, you know, intellectual property and owning my ideas and to tell me when I can't, I can't and can't speak, that was, you know, that was just outrageous to me. And at some point that transferred to university with the vice chancellor for research saying, well, you've done the work, just move on and do something else. Basically asking me to just forget about it and work on something else and not to make too many waves. And at the time when um, the Vardis and Syngenta came at me, you know, basically the university said you're on your own. And, and I think the things that the support of the lab, the support of uh, people who were around me, who, uh, you know, were, were coming in and, and I think to some extent working as much for me as they were working for the science, you know, that I really had the support of the people. I had support of, of family and I had support of a large academic family of other professors and scientists from around the world, actually, that that wrote and supported me when the company tried to, you know, they were trying to have me removed from the university. They were trying to have my papers retracted. And, the, you know, so, but it's hard to say, other than that support, some of my response was like, you know, when you're a little kid and you're being bullied, you just close your eyes and swing. And some of it was that, you know, I look back now on some of the things I did and I was like, wow, that was crazy. But also, you know, the company was playing a game where their strategy was to do things that was so outrageous that if I talked about them, I would look like I was crazy, like I had lost my mind. Um, and they they did a pretty good job of it. And probably their biggest mistake, someone mentioned the the New Yorker magazine and the Jonathan Demme film, probably their biggest mistake was they wrote it all down. You know, so my fear that they were breaking into my emails and tapping my phone and, and they, they wrote it all down. And I knew they were doing it, but I couldn't say it until you know, these documents came out in court that they they wrote down things like Lloyd, his father's health problems and purchasing my name on the Internet and, um, you know, these psychological profiles to try to figure out things to say and to email me that would that would set me off at things. And, um, you know, and some of it was just a game. I just I had a, a, an interview recently, a uh, guy who who posts on on YouTube and, you know, one of the funniest, I had a student, Nini Mai, and she would sit next to me. You know, I, you know, I used to write these emails back and forth. The company and I would go back and forth. And I had a meeting coming up with one of these guys. And I'll never forget. She just looks at me. And she goes. I dare you to dress like Neo from the Matrix, you know, <laughs> for this meeting. And so I dress like Neo for this meeting. And I go in. And this is this is now in public documents you know, where he says Hayes walked in wearing all black, wore sunglasses, kept his coat and sunglasses on the whole time. First line was, is this line clean? And if you and if you watch the Matrix, the entire conversation I had with him were, were the first lines from the Matrix. So whatever wow. he said, I just answered back with the lines from you know, so some of it so some of it was just comic relief for me. 
you know, I got into a little bit of trouble for busting rhymes doing professional talks. And, you know, and that started where they made some little comment because I, I actually think accidentally said something that rhyme and they made some comment about it was unprofessional. And then I went to this meeting, Environmental Toxicology and Chemistry, which I think there was maybe a thousand people in, in attendance where I did the entire 15 minute talk in rhyme, you know, and <laughs> And it was just little things like that, little comic relief, I think, that kept it going. But it was a stressful 20 years, to say the least. Well, Professor Hayes, I, I was just going to say that such a clear example of how you've had to not only face uh, institutional racism, right? I mean, you, you talk about it, but your strategy to not let it weigh you down and almost distort it, distort their ability to discriminate you and find community out there to support you. Just a, a really good example for some of the folks listening today. That's exactly what I was going to say. Was there was there a point, though, that you said, you know, you have a family, you have a wife, you have kids, you know, that you say, you know what, I'm just going to focus on this right now. You know, it's too much. Big pharma. Was there a point or was it like, hell no, this <laughs> I'm, I'm going down with this, you know? Again, it's hard to say when you're in it, you know, when you're in it and swinging, it's hard to say. I can't imagine I'm not the kind of person that gives up. In fact, you know, I've always said if the university really wanted to get rid of me, all they had to do was be really nice and give me everything I wanted. <laughs> and I would have walked away. And I think the other thing that gave me strength, you know, was that they never really made an attack on the science. The attack was always on me. And that's how I knew my science was untouchable, that they had to do things like write down investigate his wife, investigate his father, investigate his students. You know, and the Wikipedia page, they made that page. They made that page to put up things that were untrue. And Wikipedia, the what do you call it, the referees or whatever, went through that, blocked them and redid the page. I didn't wow. do the, I didn't do the page. I'm not that narcissistic that I would make my own. <laughs> but they you know, but they made they made the page as one of the things that they they still have a blog out with wow. my name where they pretend to be me and they post things and as I said, they hired psychiatrists and things. And, and one of the things they played on was imposter syndrome. So one of the things that they would constantly taunt me with was you don't dress right and you don't look right. And you don't talk right. And you can't, you know, that's why I bust around. I go, what do you mean? I can't rhyme when I talk. I can do it for 15 minutes freestyle. <laughs> and, 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 and the idea being, the idea being uh, that you can tell me I'm not professional, but I have the same degree that you have. So by definition, what I'm doing is professional and you have to play my game, not the other. I used to say to them all the time, I can stop studying atrazine anytime I want, but I own you. As long as I study atrazine, you have to study me. Oh my so it was, it was my choice. Oh my and that was sort of the power. And if there was a power trip, that was the thing that I owned. I said this on another interview on YouTube. I said the easiest thing for them to do was to attack me and say, you don't know what you're doing, right? Because a large part of my data was based on sex ratio. But they knew better than they did because I personally dissect and determine the sex of every single frog that we use. They're not going to do that because they knew that they couldn't touch that. And that's what gave me strength and confidence that they were playing on this imposter. You know, like they would say, oh, you're a preacher. Or, oh, you're a comedian. or Oh, you're trying to be a rapper now. You know, I guess what they expected me to do was put on my tweed coat and Harvard tie and play their game. But my point to them was I can talk like you and write like you, but you have problems understanding me. You're, you have to come play in my court not the other way around. And, and there's an old song by Linkin Park. All I want to do is be more like me and less like you. So the more they pushed me, the more Tyrone they got. I'm just <laughs> put it that way. Wow. Oh my God, that's awesome. You know, I'm looking through this list of questions, man. Tyrone answered most of them already. <laughs> oh no, he did. I do tend to talk a lot. No, no. 
Because <laughs> my dad, you know, my dad lifted refrigerators and did carpets. And every now and then I'll talk to him and I'll say, Oh, I'm tired. And he'll he'll say, You just talk all day, right? <laughs> so that's why and I said, Well, it's a little more complicated than that, but basically, yeah. <laughs> And you're in an air-conditioned room yeah. right, compared to... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Marco, you have another question? Well, I have a pro the, my professional question. Go for it. Yeah. So as, as a black man born in the segregated South, uh, to go on to Harvard for undergraduate and UC Berkeley for graduate school, how has your, your race shaped your educational journey? Oh, that, that's a long story. I, I think first and foremost, being a black man could be a big advantage or could be a dis big disadvantage. I've told my students this all the time. You go to a conference and you're the only black person there, everybody's going to remember you. So if you give a good talk, then it's going to work. But if you give it a bad, nobody's going to forget. So in some ways, it's pressure, right? You got to be on your game. On the other hand, as long as you're on your game, nobody will forget that. I think I, I, think I can safely say that there is nobody in the field that gets mistaken for me. It's very clear. That, <laughs> you know, Tyrone's in the house. It's very clear. But again, that can be a bad thing or a good thing, you know? And and I think that's what Syngenta tried to turn was like, you know, they want to associate bad and negative things with with my name. And and it's it's a unique name in science. You know, who else who else has their first name as the, as their email? Right? <laughs> and and so, so that definitely played a role. You know, I think the negative aspects of it are, you know, I talk to a lot of young people of color and they say, oh, you know, imposter syndrome and when do I stop feeling? And, and you and you don't. I'm 53 years old. I've been professionally in the game for 30 years. And, you know, if you're a person of color, at least for me, no matter what happens, good or bad, the first thing I think, wait, did that happen? Because, yeah. you know, when, when I get an, yeah. if if somebody's calling me into the dean's office for something negative, or if they're calling me in the dean's office to give me an award, I, I still think, mm, wow. you know, it comes into your mind. Another thing that's, you know, right now, BLM and, 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 and trying to make a big difference is a big thing in the university. Our department's got, you know, BLM at, at the end of their letterhead. And, and that's great, but I, what I fear let me give you an analogy. What I fear is that in a time of crisis, everybody thinks about something and then they go back to the way it was. And for example, when I first moved to California, we were in a drought. And so if you went into a restaurant, there was a little card on the table that said, we only pour water if you ask for it. We're in a drought. As soon as it rained, the cards went away and now they pour water. And I go, wait, why is it okay to waste water now? Why don't you still maintain? And so I think about that. When I think about George Floyd, everybody got all about BLM. But also when I first moved to Berkeley, Rodney King had just happened. So this isn't something new. And, and, and so the other thing that impacts me throughout my professional and personal life is as a person of color, and especially in this case as a black man, I don't have the luxury to only think about these issues when something big like George Floyd happens. I have to think about it every single day of my life. And again, whether it's something good or whether it's something bad, I have to ask, okay, wait, did I just get treated that way because of this? It maybe gets more complicated now because I do get recognized for my work and stuff. And, you know, so there is some could be good or bad, you know, so so it's not it's not as simple as being a person of color or being a black when it's somebody who knows you and either, you know, they're on industry side or on the other side. And so they're recognizing you and treating you in a certain way because of that. I, I think it's made me it's put me in a position where. I can more effectively mentor students of color and first generation students and low income students, even though I don't know what it's like to be an immigrant, low income Vietnamese woman. There are a lot of things that we can connect over that. that I'm just using that as one example. There are a lot of things that we can connect around 
that I understand because I know what it's like to be excluded or to feel like you're the only one or to feel like, do I belong or to feel like, you know, is this happening to me because of, you know, this particular feature? And it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard, it's hard to separate those things. And I don't know that I would want to. Working in Africa was another one that I think I had a very different experience as a Black person who has origins. Not that I felt like I was going home or something or going to Wakanda or something like that, but, you know, but just to be in Africa in a place I've dreamed about as a kid and, and to, to interact with local people and get to know about African history, I think maybe meant more to me than my students who weren't Black who went uh, with me on some of those trips. So it's, it's, it's hard to separate. And, and again, I don't know that I would separate those things. You know, one of the most challenging questions, and I think it's challenging for me uh, because it, it oftentimes is insulting when people say, you know, I'm colorblind, like I don't see color. Um, and I have a very profound answer for it. But what, what would you say for those folks? I know we all aspire to be colorblind, but the realities um, are very different uh, for, for people of color. And so if you could share a little bit about how you deal with that, I'm sure you get that quite a bit. Yeah, I, you know, and one, I, I don't think it's, I, don't, I think it's not true, but the people that I trust the least are people who say, oh, I'm not racist. I go, okay, then you just haven't thought about it. Everybody is a little bit uncomfortable and whether it's, it doesn't have to necessarily be race based on color, ethnicity, but everybody is biased. Everybody is, is comfortable with what you're with and you're a little uncomfortable when you're in a different environment. You're a little uncomfortable with somebody who's a little different, even if it only means that you don't know what to say and what's okay and what's not okay. So the people I trust the least are the people who won't acknowledge that they have that bias, positive or negative, right? Sometimes it works in your favor, depending on how you measure things. And I would I would not want to give up who I am and where I came from. It, it affects how I how I do and what I decide to do and how, and, and I enjoy diversity around me in my lab. You know, I, I, I can still make the joke that I used to make 30 years ago and that is I've never had a minority in my lab because I've never had enough of anybody to make a majority. And that makes for not just interesting potlucks, but interesting ideas and interesting interactions and interesting learning experiences. And I personally would never want to be colorblind. I work, I continue to work to get rid of my bias. And anybody who claims that they don't have bias is somebody who really needs to take a look and really needs to go to work. Thank you. And, you know, I'll add in some cases that bias is welcome. If that bias means that I'm going to recognize you for your unique experience. I'm going to recognize that you will have some unique contributions that others will not be able to provide. And, and I can give you an example that's sort of race-based, but, but more based on status and circumstances in that since I started working on atrazine, I've attracted a number of people to the lab who grew up with their parents working in agriculture and their perspective, right? And I don't mean just like, oh, they designed the experiments differently, but just the way that you approach the science, when they're watching me weigh something out on the on the micro balance in milligram amounts that we're going to now apply to a frog and look at adverse effects with them knowing that, hey, my mom and dad have been sprayed with kilograms, hundreds of kilograms of this for the last 30 years. It gives you a whole different perspective on how and why you're doing the science and why it's important. And in that way. I, I would never want to give up. I would never want to be colorblind. I always want to recognize the contributions of those individuals and their perspectives and, and what they go on, to do, go on to do after. And I can give you another example. I had a guy in my lab who was white and from rural Pennsylvania. And, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing. I discovered white people don't know how to be a minority. You know? <laughs> and he was in this environment. And, and I remember we, we were having a potluck one time. He was like, uh, I, I, I don't know what to bring. I can't bring anything. 
I said, I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, the Vietnamese students bring in Vietnamese stud food and the Mexican students bring in Mexican. And I said, Paul, what would you bring if you were at a potluck in, in Pennsylvania? And, and, and he said, I'd bring beer butt chicken. I said, I guarantee you nobody has ever had that. And, and, so, and so this person, you know, has this experience where he realizes that diversity does not mean everybody but white people. That diversity means what it says. It means diversity. And I'll never forget one day he asked, could he, you know, there were a couple of days a week that he was that he wasn't around in the mornings. And you know, I started to get annoyed because he's a graduate student. And you know, I'm like, you know, you you gotta be present. I didn't know where he was. And then once he asked, Well, can I bring some people by the lab? And so I said, sure, you know, you know, we have things we have to set up. And he walks in with a group of black and brown kids. And it turns out he had been working in a in a like a, a local middle school. Wow working with students who didn't have a science program at their school and he wanted to bring them by. And I, and I remember they were over at the microtome, you know, he was showing them the microtome. I'll never forget this story. And so I just sat back and said, you know, you, you do your thing, you know? And so he walked over to the microtome and he's explaining to the kids, you know, this slices tissues really, really thin. And this one little black girl says, how thin, Dr. Paul? And he goes, real thin. And she says, Thinner than a lays? And he goes, yeah, thinner than a lays. He goes, oh, you're lying, Dr. Paul. Ain't nothing thinner than a lays. And I remember he was offended. You know, it was one of those cultural things. I said, look, she's probably had to help cook. She's probably had to slice potatoes. And she's probably wondered, why can't I slice them as thin as a lays potato chip? And you just told her that you can slice something thinner than the thinnest thing she knows, <laughs> you know? And, and just to see him interacting that way and to see him appreciating diversity in a way that I don't think he did when he came into the lab. You know, you have this sense, and I, I really appreciate it, of confidence, and you're doing some great science, some great, great science, right? And you're like, well, that's my science. It speaks for itself. You mentioned the imposter syndrome kind of starts creeping in. The reason I mentioned this is because I feel no one can see my patients better than me, understand them better than me. Although there are times when I'm like, oh, wait, do I know? Do I, you know, and then you, the imposter syndrome creeps its ugly head. And then I have to catch myself. How do you do that where you're like, no, hey, I got this? I, I, one, I don't, I don't know. I don't think I could do what you do. But two, I guess, um, you know, it, it, it depends on, you know, there are many different components. I think when I first started teaching, the hardest thing for me to do, and maybe some of this had to do with imposter syndrome, but the hardest thing for me was when a student asked a question that I didn't know. And, and the most important thing I learned was to be confident in what you don't know. And I start out first day of class. I say, look, there's, you know, sometimes 150, this year it's 50. I go, one of you is going to know more about something that I'm talking about every single day because there are 50 of you. And I'm confident with that. That part I'm over. There are things like I've never thought of myself as smart. I think I've known some smart people. I don't think I'm one of them. But I think I work hard and I think I put in the time. And I think I think things through very carefully. And I think that's what most of my students do. And so when I was being attacked by Novartis, I thought, you know, this is what we did and this is what we got. And if we made a recognizable mistake, I'm sure it was recorded and it was written down. And, and you know, and at the time, especially, we were under such scrutiny that, you know, and they couldn't find any out of thousands of data points. They had to turn to attacking, attacking me. But it, it, but it never completely goes away. And again, that confidence is more because of the people around me. The teaching confidence is more of, you know, I've taught every year for 27 years, so I'm, I'm more comfortable in the material. But there's there's still, there's always, you never stop asking yourself, am I getting this positive thing because of this? Am I getting this negative thing because of this? That that, that never goes away. 
I think if a white male gets something, he doesn't ask, did you just give this to me because I'm white? Even though many times that might be the case. And, and, and if something bad happens, I think it's rare that a white person thinks, oh, did you just treat me that way because I'm white? It's, it's, I don't think it's the experience that you have in this world if you are a white cis male. Thank you. Thank you. We traditionally end our podcast with a question for our listeners out there many of whom are on their path to joining us on the front lines, whether it's in the clinic, in front of the classroom, or as a researcher. Professor Hayes, you've talked a lot about your experiences as a professor, as a researcher, and as a black man at the university. What advice would you give to potential allies, white colleagues and students, and how can they make a more inclusive environment for all of us? What would you give advice for them? Wow, that's a tough one. Um, I think one, being as open-minded and accepting as, as possible, another not to feel or approach as if you can solve all of the problems for people that you can make a space and you can make the environment but it's not up to you to i guess not not being patronizing i think recognizing the that even if as you mentor somebody that it, it shouldn't be your goal to make them like you in terms of how they present themselves. I mean, there's a certain level, especially when you're young of how you have you have to present you have to play the game you know my advisor you know, and, and actually, I'll, I'll use him as a good role model because I think that my PhD advisor was a good role model. He was never the most sensitive person. But when you let him know that there was an issue that he needed to be sensitive about, then then he would readily say, well, I don't really understand it. But one, realizing when, when you need to be understanding and accepting and sensitive, even if you don't understand, and also realizing when, when you need to give that hard advice. And I remember when I was about to graduate and jobs were opening up, I remember he sat me down and he said, cut your hair and shave. And he goes, not because you're black. He said, I told my, my hippie students in the 60s and 70s, same thing. I think he said, your hair will grow back, but once the job's gone, it's gone. And you know, I thought that was good sound advice. And there was a risk to him to say it because I might perceive it as you're telling me to be something that I'm not. And I remember recently, you know, after I sent, you know, I sent a letter, an open letter to the department discussing how I felt over the last 20 years. And I remember he said, you know, he called me and, you know, and not somebody who would call people. And he said, I hope I never made you feel this way. And I said, no, and we had the same conversation. And I think he ended with, I hope I was equally harsh to all of you. no matter where. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I say that as, a, as, a, as and we laughed about it, but I say it also in in the spirit of the question that was asked is don't be patronizing so he, he never treated me easy or treated anybody easy because he thought that they couldn't take it and he and i said yeah you know in fact i just got asked to write a biography for him for a book that's coming out in his honor and i said yeah he treated us all equally harshly there <laughs> 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 was no one person that he picked on in particular um, so, so I think those those are the things that you want to be accepting, accept that people, they're going to do something a little bit different maybe, and maybe you want to understand how, but that doesn't mean that you don't instruct them properly and that you aren't hard on them the way you need to be hard on all of your students in order to make them to, to succeed. Thanks so much. Good advice. A long answer to a short oh, question. <laughs> Professor Tyrone Hayes, Tyrone, thank you so much, man. It's so good to see thank you. you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. I want to thank our very special guest, University of California, Berkeley, Professor of Integrative Biology, Dr. Tyrone Hayes. It's the contributions of people of color, of people like Professor Hayes, that enrich the sciences. 
As researchers and academics of color, we provide a voice to our communities. And as Professor Hayes said, those who have the privilege to know have the duty to act. Thank you for listening to another episode of Health Equity from the Frontlines, brought to you by the Ultimate Institute for Health Equity. On behalf of our co-hosts, Dr. Efrain Talamantes and Dr. Marco Angelo, this is Dr. Roger Liu reminding everyone, if you ever feel discouraged on your path, to remember these words. Never find yourself in a position where you let another man tell you when to get up in the morning, when to eat your lunch, and when to go home to your family. Stay safe and keep on fighting. We'll see you on the front lines. The ultimate Institute for Health Equity develops innovative solutions to eliminate unfair and unjust health disparities. Our researchers, grants, and medical education teams use the best evidence to ensure our patients and communities live healthier lives. Health equity means we remove obstacles to health such as poverty, discrimination, and their consequences, including powerlessness and lack of access to good jobs with fair pay, quality education, and housing, safe environments, and health care. Thank you for supporting us and please visit us at ultimate.org.